Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night, and... I have to go to Lakewood tomorrow to visit my daughter. Just had a baby girl, so I was planning to do a talk tomorrow, but I don't think that it'll probably be in the cards. I'm tired, so we'll see if I have enough uh, wakefulness to go through a podcast tonight or if I'll be the first guy who ever falls asleep in the middle of his own podcast. Uh, I have a lot of requests over who to talk about tonight, which means that people are listening, but on the other hand, I'm not a shorter or a cook at a Chicago restaurant. So I'm just going to plunge ahead with what caught my fancy, and that is this week you have the yard site of somebody you probably never heard of, most of you, and that's from Shalom Shachna of Poland of Lublin in the 1500s, which sounds like a very obscure name, but really it shouldn't be. You know, among those that know, the cognoscenti know who I'm talking about. Most other people do not. Um, This takes us back to Poland in the 14-1500s, we call the golden age of Poland, but really the golden part of the golden age of Poland. And that has to do with the fact that once upon a time, Poland and its next-door neighbor, Lithuania, the two countries eventually merged into one grand uh, empire, the Polish-Lithuanian Empire, <clears throat> is a place where Jews were constantly trickling in in the 1300s and 1400s because the kings of Poland, by and large, were a lot better and nicer to the Jews than any of the other kings of Europe at that time. The Jews in those centuries were being kicked out of their countries little by little, and they were allowed into Poland because they helped the economy. And I would say in general, the Poles, although it was a Catholic country, were on the relative scale of the Middle Ages, you know, uh, tolerant. Uh, just just in it because they had a pagan background, and there's reasons for it, I can't explain now. So, um, not to take too much time, the some Jews uh, did very well. And... Uh, the kings of Poland during this period, what they call the Agelian dynasty, a certain royal family that ruled the country for a couple hundred years, rather successfully. And at that time, the question was, who's going to be the top dog in Poland? The nobles or the king, the crown? There was always a tug of war between the two. And uh, the public in general wanted the king to be the one in charge because if you live in a city or if you're educated and all that, you don't want the nobles just to they're own the country and only worry about their own welfare. Somebody should try to worry about the welfare of the whole country. But on the other hand, if you're normal, you say, the heck with that, I'm only interested in my own, uh, pers- you know, Dalinamas. So this is a struggle that was going on at the time I'm talking about. <clears throat> the crown was still a strong institution, the, the royal government. And the kings were pretty pro-Jewish. And the reason is simple. If there's a struggle for power between the king on the one hand and the nobility on the other, it's a struggle for money. Because if you have a lot of money, you can raise a lot of soldiers. If you have a lot of soldiers, you can boss everybody else around. That's what it boils down to. So uh, the Jews are a source of income for the king. So as I was saying, um, so what happened was that his father was uh, this uh, rich and successful Jew and uh, under the Hegelian kings. And uh, he was able to have high position within the, the, the royal court. And uh, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, he was the only Jew that was allowed to live in own a, pal- a house, a big mansion within the city of Lublin itself. 
the other Jews at that time, the people of Lublin wanted to keep him out, and uh, at that time the locals were strong enough to be able to keep the Jews out. Later on, believe it or not, the Jews got strong enough that the nobles couldn't keep them out. Poland is a very interesting country. People don't know about it. It's one of the places where the Jewish position actually improved <laughs> over the years, and cities they weren't allowed into, and eventually they were allowed into, and uh, little by little the Jews, uh, got, I would even say a stranglehold, in a certain sense of the, of the grand Polish economy. Listen, the country was big, it was rich, had a lot of resources, they had these nobles and the peasants, and the Jews played a, uh, had, a, had a good shot at uh, getting a nice position within the business market over there, and that's what they did. So this guy, as they say before, was a major, what we would call today, an international banker, <coughs> international uh, treasurer, and uh, he supplied the king with money for wars against the Turks and against other enemies. It's, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting story by itself, but I don't want to talk about him. I want to talk about his son. And uh, what happened was that, uh, I mean, I, I can't overemphasize, I mean, you know, look, this guy was the king's personal banker, you know, under King Alexander of Poland. Anyway, uh, one of the ways they got rich was that um, they would get the tax farming. And that's a famous uh, system, which the king of Poland, for example, would say, I put you in charge of this in this whole region of Poland, and you collect the taxes. And the idea is, You'll collect so and so many millions, and you keep a little for yourself. You know, they, they, they had a system, but they worked it out. So it's a matter of scale. If I'm collecting, you know, let's say for argument's sake, $100 million total from the all population, even if I get 1% or half a percent, we're still talking about a lot of money. You see what I'm saying? So uh, that's, how, that's what the well-to-do Jews were, were able to do. Okay? Uh, so this, our hero, therefore, is born in 1490, smack in the middle of this golden era, of Shalom Shachna, and he's born in a palace, as I say before, and uh, his father's, uh, you know, uh, uh, got it good, and uh, therefore he's raised, as we would say, in the lap of luxury. But here's the thing. Who are these Polish Jews I'm talking about? They're Ashkenazic Jews who moved here from Germany, and before that from France. They're from de la from, uh, at least in the culture. That doesn't mean each individual person was so from, but the culture is very from culture, very culturally insular. And these are the descendants of Rashi and Tosos in the, in, the, in the mental sense. So what does that mean? To put in simple language, if a guy's a millionaire, he's not going to give his kid an education in Harvard. Rather, he's going to send his kid to Lakewood. He's going to send his kid to Punovich. That's what they consider to be an elite education. As far as business, you'll pick that up by working for the father, you know, and later on. But the liberal arts education, as we would say today, would be a Torah education, a Gemara education. And not interested in a Polish education, not interested in sending university to Equidat, but they want him to have the best learning so he'd be famous rabbi and bring glory to the family and write Sfarim that would be read by people hundreds and thousands of years. This is the mentality of the Jews of Poland, especially the rich ones in the golden age of Poland. That's what makes it so interesting. The Jews, you know, did well, but then they used their resources to reinforce the inner parts of Judaism. It's uh, most unusual. And, and our hero is a perfect example of this. So here's a boy born in 1490. By the time he's, uh, I don't know how old, you know, 14, 15, something like that, um, his father stands in well with the king. Listen, I want to tell you something. There were times when the nobles and elders, like, beat up his father and chose money. The king made them pay uh, damages. You know I mean? He was, it's just, just, just very interesting relationship. I don't have time to go into in great detail. Um, all I can say is that um, by the time he's a young, he's getting an elite education. 
So if I was the millionaire, like he was, and I have a son, and let's say he's five years old, I'm hired the best Rebbe, meaning the one who's like the most talented Rebbe anywhere, and he's going to teach him as soon as possible, the Chumash and the Rashi stuff, because he's really a top, I mean, money money talks. He's the top guy who knows how to teach the kid using all kinds of different tricks and sticks. Not some stupid hater situation where you just repeat things, la, la, baba, comment salafa, but someone who has a natural understanding of children and therefore can get them as quickly as possible through Tanakh and then the Mishnayas and then especially into the Gemara. And you hire a special guy, a special tutor because you can afford anything that a guy should teach him how to read Chumash and Rashi, and, I mean Gemara Rashi, and then a special guy to teach him how to do Tosos, and a special guy to teach him how to do Pilpul within Tosos. I'm serious about this, you know? And there were tricks that they could teach you how to do Lambdas, who, you know, we send our kids to day school. We send our kids, you know, to maybe to Yeshiva High School. And you hope you get lucky with a Rebbe here or two. You hope? Uh, often not. Uh, here you have a one-on-one. And not only that, if the Rebbe doesn't work out, you fire him, you get another guy. The guy, the father's a millionaire. And so you have almost like a perfect system for producing big people if the kid has any kishronis, you know. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But if he does, then you have a perfect system to develop whatever lies within the child. There's an entire group of rich Jews who became, whose children became big rabbis, famous rabbis, like the Ramal, for example, exactly on this system. It's a very interesting system. Uh, so the parents spared no money in order to make sure their kid would be a big scholar and become famous and bring glory to the family. It's, you might say, Shalolishma, I get that. But nevertheless, uh, you know, Mito Shalolishma, Bolishma, first of all, and second of all, it worked. You know what I'm It worked. Provided the kid is good um, and you have you know, the money's no object, and you can get them any safer, which at that time is rare to get a safer, but a rich person can afford to get it copied. So you have, like, almost a perfect system. And uh, the only problem is that, uh, you know, the guy died when, uh, he was 17 years old when his father died. So uh, when that happened, what do you do now? Well, it's interesting. The mother, as happens, took over. She actually had been his main parent. The father was very busy with his affairs, as you can imagine. The mother been the main parent. That's why he's so from. Get it? When the mother's in charge, you get more from. I'm serious. That's a, that's a historical fact. And uh, she, number one, turned out to be one of these super women, his mother. I think her name was Gold, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, she was a super women who could run the family business empire and at the same time pay close attention to the progress and learning of her children. Isn't that interesting? Progress and learning of her children. And so the result is that um, this boy, uh, who's now 17 or something like that, he goes to Krakow, which was the capital of Poland, and was the headquarters of the biggest yeshiva at that time, run by Jakob Pollock, who was a rabbi from Germany uh, and Bohemia, uh, who was, how should I put it, he was like, this is going to sound funny, but he's like the Baron Cutler, you might say, of that time. Meaning he was the hot rush yeshiva. People streamed from all over the place, Maybe Chaim Brisker might be a good way of, of, of describing it, where people, a new style of learning, and it was hot, and really people from all over Europe walked to learn under him the new style of Lumdus. This is what they call the Chalukim, which I've discussed before. This is the old-fashioned pill, that no longer exists today, in which you take a Kasha and a Teres from one place, and then you come up with an answer, and then you hold that, and you take another Kasha and a Teres from another place, and you even do it at the level of implied, not explicit, hysterious, but implied, Implicit steerus, and uh, it's what they call the era of chilukim and pilpul chilukim. 
which, frankly, I don't have time to repeat anymore. If you listen to the old podcast of some of them, I'm sure I must have gone into this. This is style of learning which flourished once and is not around today, but it was once. And it was so hot and so popular, it's unbelievable. As a Ryaka Pollock, he was like the Rechaim, seriously, of the early, late 14, early 1500s. And he made Yeshiva in Krakow. And this young boy, he's now 17, 18, whatever it is, goes to learn on him, I believe, for four years, if I remember correctly. And he picked up the Derech. And um, did he become a son-in-law? I don't think so. But uh, all I know is that he becomes a chip off the old block. He's like a Rebarch bear, you might say, to Rebchaim Brisker, if I can use a parallel. And um, after four years, there was a lot of politics that got involved because Ryaka Pollock was a contentious guy who got in a lot of big fights and then eventually forced him out of Poland. There was famous stuff about it. I don't remember the order, but he had a big problem with Miun. You know what I'm talking about? A, a girl who's Memain. Anyway, don't, don't worry about it. These are famous fights of yesteryear. Maybe I should do a, a series of podcasts once of famous uh, battles in the halachic world that got real ugly. Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> it's actually very interesting. And this is one of the famous ones of the Mian of the uh, Katana. Anyway, uh, and so the big rabbi leaves or dies. It's not clear. And uh, this Shom Shachna then, who's now is early, or 20, 21, 22, something like that, uh, goes back home to Lublin. He's picked up the derech, and he enters the family business but it, with his mother, but at the same time, and he's very successful. He does the same thing with the father, with the tax farming and the organizing of business agents and banking and networking and all this kind of junk, and, uh, government contracts, you name it. And yet at the same time, he is... Ron Cutler. He organizes a Lakewood, a Punavish. I That's no exaggeration what I'm saying. And he uses the millions that he makes every year because he was loaded uh, to set up a yeshiva in Lublin, which he didn't have to get the Shnars and Meshulachim for. He made enough money. And he became the new Ron Cutler, so to speak. And he became the successor. And I can tell you from all over Poland, which is all over Eastern Europe, and even from Germany and elsewhere, boys flocked for the next 40 years. So from the time he's 20, I think he died, let me see, he died, 1490, 1559, so he's back, you know, he lived in his 60s. So for a long time, you know, in his all adult life, he ran this uh, double operation. Isn't that interesting? Now, he was the Albazin also, so in Lublin, because he was loaded, so in addition to being the biggest Talmud whatever, uh, at least you can argue he's the biggest Talmud I'll explain what I mean in a second. Uh, he became the Albazin, the Rav of the Kehillah, and he was also the Rosh Yeshiva. He owned the Yeshiva. And uh, what more do you want? And he's the richest guy in town. And in addition to that, he stands in well with the king. Uh, now, these are the two famous Polish kings of yesteryear, Sigismund I and Sigismund II. Under their rule, Poland was actually a, a glorious epoch. And uh, they had their ups and downs, like all kings do. But overall, they tried to be pretty fair about it. And, uh, you know, they were always res- had trouble with the nobles, with the Russians. But Poland was running pretty well in those days. Let me tell you something. And they were powerful rulers. And they were religiously pretty tolerant. This is when the Protestant Reformation hit uh, Poland and the Catholics went crazy. And the kings tried to mediate between the two sides. It's just a very interesting episode in Polish history, but you're not interested in that. So here are the Jews, and the Jews are basically saying like this, you know, you guys fight among each other, just leave us alone. Well, the king of Poland got so tight with this Rashi, with Shalom Shachna, he named him Top Jew, Top Dog of the Jews in Poland, or one of two guys. And he gave him um, 
like the Rambam had. He gave him Chayv Misa powers. You understand? He made, when he said he's the doctor of the Jews, meaning the chief rabbi of the Jews in Gans Poland, or or Little Poland as they call it, the big area of Poland, and Ishal Yamres Picha. You know, you give the orders, and uh, let me tell you something. Anybody mess with you, you can kill him. You can torture him. You can do whatever you want to them. And Shalom Shachna did. And so here you have a very interesting epoch in the history of Eastern European Jewry, where you have somebody who's like a Brown Cutler, but is given police power by the state. <laughs> you understand? Imagine if you had a Brown Cutler who was empowered by the U.S. government to kill anybody to open the store on Shabbos, or torture him, or, or fine him, or something like that. It's crazy. And uh, Shalom Shachna used it. And he used it. And, he, and in fact, he overused it because power corrupts. It can't help. I don't care who you are. Once you get used to this, you start using it too much. And when I say too much, ad kedekach, that the Jews complain to the king. And that's what happened in his case. So he was the biggest Rashiba, and he was the biggest this, and he was the biggest Talmud Chacham, and blah, blah, blah. And yet they don't like the fact that he's siding with one side against the other, and he's threatening anybody who disagrees with him to be severely punished. And anybody, he puts people in Cherem, just like that, and he canasses them uh, huge amounts of money. Now, he did all the same Shamayim. No, I'm serious. I don't mean to be funny. In his mind, whatever he's doing, he's doing for the right reasons. That's not necessarily how they saw it. And this is the problem of arbitrary government. If I'm the ruler, I don't have to answer to anybody. And if I don't have to explain myself to anybody, then I alienate the public, even if I am right, from the technical, let's say, halachic point of view. I just have to give one... There are so many stories about this. I'll just tell you one story, which is, which is almost funny. And that is, and I touched on it a couple of months ago, uh, after his time came the Maram Lublin, later in the 1500s. And the Maram, who was a wild and crazy guy also, you know, with a big temper and all the rest of it. And the Maram Lublin has a lot of shots and chubas. Uh, Shalom Shachnas will see didn't write any swarm. And the Maram Lublin said like this, what do you do in a case of a Meshumid, a Mummer, God converts, uh, which they had a lot of in Poland, I'll tell you something amazing. The art school converted to Catholic. The main publishers of this farm was a certain family in Krakow, uh, a well-known family. And in the 1530s, uh, Krakow was a little worse for the Jews only because the university was there and the Jesuits were there. Uh, but still, the Ramal was also there. Anyway, the main family of publishers of Swarm, of Gomorrah and all the rest of it, all of a sudden the three brothers and the sons, they all convert. And uh, the Jews go wild and crazy. And the Jews don't want to buy this farm anymore. And they go to the king of Poland. The king of Poland gives an order that they must buy this farm. And so they buy this farm and burn it. It's a constant story over there. And you know, there's all, all these little side tales. So, mummers were a problem. Even though one would think, why would a Jew convert? I mean, the Jews had it pretty good in Poland. Which is true. I'm not talking about something that happened a lot. But it did happen. And so, Marm Lumblin, who was the big postig, one of the big postings in the later 1500s, has a question. I remember this very clearly. He said, what should you do to a somebody who wants to be a, a Meshuman? Uh, should they beat him up? Should they torture him? Should they this, that, and the other? And Ram Lom said, yes, kill him, knock him off. And I'll tell you, Misa, Shalom Shachna found a guy who converted, and he chopped his hands off and knocked out his eyeballs. I said it wrong. He knocked out his eyeballs and pulled out his tongue. That's what it was. So him and his kids. Oh, my Lord, he could do it. Because the king of Poland gave him all this power. You see? Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What happened? After they did that, the guy and his sons, who were blind and tongueless, I guess, somehow or other converted, and somehow or other were able... You can make a movie out of this, a bad movie. 
and and uh, convinced the Catholic Church that the Jews had done it to him. And as a result, the Polish government punished the Jews in some fashion. It caused a lot of trouble. He said, a lot of trouble for the Jewish community. Now, if he would have been smart, just kill him. The hell with it. You know what I mean? That's that's what the, the Marm Lublin says. So he said, my policy ever since that incident with Shalom Shachnes, you find the Meshumad, something like this, just knock him off. Uh, save a lot of trouble for the Jewish community. So it goes to show you how powerful Shalom Shachnes was. People don't know this. So here's, like I said before, Byron Cutler, or Panavish Yerub, whatever you want, with uh, power by the Hormid of the Malka, as they say, by the state. Well, since he overdid it, Jews start complaining the king took the power away from him. This often happens in history. Happened in the time of the Rajba also in Spain. So, you know, Jews, rabbis don't do well with, uh, what's the right word, excessive power. I don't even think they want it necessarily, but he did. And if you ever read some of the Psakim, the few that survived, Roshom Shachna, he's always threatening people, you know. If you don't listen to this Psak, I'll come and get you. And he could. So we're just not used to such people in Jewish history. It's kind of unusual. And although, as I say, a lot of his powers were stripped away, even so, you know, by the time he died, he still had uh, quite a, uh, a, a powerful uh, situation over there because his money was with him, you know what I'm saying? And uh, his contacts at court were uh, still with him. And uh, he was a member of the upper class. So he knew how to rub around with the nobility. And uh, the result is that he really uh, was, was uh, something else. Now, understand, during the period I'm talking about, the Jews of Poland kind of imitated what the guy were doing, and that is the nobles got together in what they call a same. Same is like a parliament. They had local parliaments that sent delegates to the national parliament. That's how the nobles operated, and, the, and the, even the non-nobles. So the Jews called the Vada Barossos, that they would elect in local kahillas, you know, members of, uh, you know, delegates to a national council, and they would to get together nationally uh, twice a year, once a year, and this Yerid or that Yerid in certain fairs, and they would act like a, a, a parliament, and they would pass takonis and things like that for the whole Jewish population of the kingdom of Poland. And here's Shom Shachna at the top of the pyramid. It was the top of the pyramid. In fact, it was up to him. He tried to be like the king of Poland. That didn't work. And like I say, by the time it's all over, what can I tell you? Uh, you know, his power was stripped away from him. The way the king, the nobles stripped away the power of the king of Poland from them. So he still was a big king, but not... He didn't have the power that he once once upon a time had, as I, as I said before. Now, his main career in all this was as Rosh Hashiva. So in addition to doing this and doing that and that and that, his main career was, was running a big yeshiva. I don't know how you do that, because I would think that's a full-time job. And he had hundreds and hundreds of students, and they came from all over the place. And the result is... That, what should I tell you? You know, you have a full-time job. You know, those days, the Rosh Hashiva gave a shear like every day, and really two shiurim. The Nodabi Huda gave four shiurim a day. It's crazy, you know? Four shiurim a day. So, I don't know how you do that, but they did. Uh, first of all, they love it. And second of all, besides the shear, you're hocking and learning with these real smart guys. It's well known that, you know, dozens and dozens of the big rabbis in the 1500 learned in that yeshiva in Lublin, uh, there were actually two big, very important yeshivas and a bunch of smaller ones. And the two yeshivas hated each other and they didn't get along and had different styles of learning. There was A and B. A was Roshom Shachna, the yeshiva in uh, Lublin, and the other yeshiva was an Oster, that's the Marshal. And the Marshal was always complaining about that he doesn't like the new style of learning, the brisker style that they're doing in the other place. And uh, the students from one yeshiva and the other, they see each other, they'd hock each other up and each one would make fun of the other one. 
and the Rashi was making fun of each other. It wasn't great, and Marshal is always complaining about this and strongly criticizing the style of learning as artificial, because that was the pilpul in which, as I said before, everything's local, and you know, you ask Akasha, why does Rashi, why does Tos ask this Kasha on Rashi? Uh, and if they did, didn't Rashi know it? And then you say, well, Rashi really knew it, but it's written in the words of Rashi, you don't see it. And then you say, didn't Tosis know the Rashi were written in the words of Rashi, didn't see it? They go back and forth, up and down. It's, a, it's a, like I say, a style of learning that was once popular, and Marshal didn't like that. The Marshal, who was also a giant, you know that, of Shlomo Luria, uh, he said, uh, you should learn a, a, a very heavy bi'iyun, halach lamaisi. Get what I'm saying? Asuki shmaitza libid hilchasa, based on a very extreme iyun, which is a very solid way to go. And if you, when I'm talking about, look at the Yamsha Shlomo, they wrote, uh, which he's interested in, what's the din at the end, but only after you've really thoroughly gone through the Makoras, the, the Gemara Rashi, Tosis, and the Roshanim. Uh, apparently, the Rosh Shachna, who left no books, didn't learn this way, but it's more like, as I say before, this populistic style in which you give these hours and hours long shirim to blow everybody away. And uh, Rove, there's no question that the great majority of Talmudim liked that way and not the Marshal's way. And that's why Marshal is always writing these bitter letters to his cousin, the Ramah, complaining about this. Although the Ramah was a Talmud of Rosh Shachna. Uh, so it was uh, the Maral, the Maral's brother. A lot of famous rabbis, I mean, many, many of the big rabbis in Poland, the 1500s, famous names, learned by Shom Shachna. As a matter of fact, the Ramah married his daughter. Uh, there's a funny story. I don't know if it's true or not. And they say when, uh, it's well known, the Ramah married the daughter of the Rashi. Well, listen, they're both millionaires. The Ramah also came from the exact same, similar type of family. Uh, and, you know, with the same elite education. It was such an era. And Ramon married the daughter, who died after a year or two. And when he died, he gave a very fancy hespid, uh, in which he... How's it go? It's a really cool story. Oy, he quoted the Pusik about Jezebel. Even though she's wicked, they said, you know, let this accursed woman be swallowed up by the ground. She was a Vasmelech. And he compared it to, uh, you know, the ground will now have its... And, you know, now he's burying his wife, who's the Basimelech, the daughter of Rosh Hashiva, and now the ground will get its kapara, it will atone for uh, swallowing uh, 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 I can't remember exactly. It was a very eloquent sermon, and the story goes like this. He wanted to marry his sister, the father, which often happened, and the Rosh Hashiva, Shalom Shachter, said, no, if you gave such an eloquent husband, you must have been planning this one out a long time. So I expect you to sit there and cry. If you can be so eloquent, it means you didn't really love my daughter. Some, something like that. And, uh, you know, it's one of those stories. And, uh, nevertheless, Jeremiah was his son-in-law. So, uh, and in spite of that, he's a cousin with the Marshal. And the Marshal is always complaining to Jeremiah in letters that they write between each other about the father-in-law, that he doesn't like his style of learning. And I wouldn't say that, it, it, let me put it this way, Jeremiah's style of learning is more like the Marshal's. So, that simply indicates to me that... He didn't make a cookie cutter. You know, he offered his style of learning, and the people gained by what they gained by it. But each Talmud probably developed along his own lines, which is the best uh, policy, as far as I'm concerned, you know, in accordance with his own uh, Mahalakam personality. So imagine being in Lublin in the 1520s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, because he died in 1558 or 1559. And uh, this is the Yeshiva where you got three square a day. It's like near Israel, you know. It was a, the, I mean, the Russia was loaded, so people had a dorm room. 
and they were taken care of. But on the other hand, there's a lot of heavy-duty learning going on over there, and uh, he just was a very famous and world-renowned person. The thing is, the style, he didn't like Rennie Swarm. And it's a well-known, it's often quoted, they say, I don't want to write Swarm because people shouldn't rely on me. I did it based on my Eun, but everybody should do it on the basis of their own Eun. That's like a classic. In all the scholarly books, they always quote that. Uh, which, which could mean a policy that goes as follows, which is just interesting. Um, I'm thinking how to say this to you. You know, time has a funny effect on people. And the farther away you get from somebody, the less powerful his memory is, no matter what people say. So I'll just give an example um, off the top of my head. I'm sure when the note of Yehuda was alive, if he posking something, that's it. If you're a Talmud of his, or even a Talmud of a Talmud, that's it. And you don't want to hear anybody come with a kasha against it, or say he was wrong. It was my Rebbe, my Rashiva, he was a Tzadik Yisodolam, he was a Gonadir, all which is true, and therefore that's it. But you want to know something? Give it another two generations, and then it was just another rabbi from way back when. I'm sure in the time of the Ramah, his students after the Ramah said it, that's it, I don't want to hear nothing else, you didn't know who the Ramah was, uh, he was unbelievable, and he passing this way, whether it makes sense or not from the Gemara, that's it. But as time goes on, given another two, three, four generations, the Ramah is just another rabbi from the past. You know, and, and all the time, it's always like that. That's the nature of life. You know what I'm saying? That's the nature of life. Chassam Sofer, here's a good one, the Vilna Gon. He still has a little bit of that, right? People say, oh, the Groh, but that doesn't mean every person like the Groh. Nevertheless, you see what I'm saying? So, oh, if the Groh said it, that's it. You know, that's it. Now, in Israel, they talk a do like that for certain reasons, but nowhere else. So it's funny in that way. Uh, but when you're alive, that's all there is to it. Ramosha Feinstein is the closest thing I can think to in America. Although now they're coming out with people that are creaking on him. It's, it's, it's the normal way of the life goes on in the halacha world. That if somebody will give out a psaac and for his lifetime and maybe a little bit afterwards, just the fact that he said it makes it beyond criticism. But as more time goes on, somebody might bring a kasha or something like this or another way of looking at it. And that new way will get will get uh, traction, and the old psaka will, won't be held in the same esteem with which it once was. So they say, or Shalom Shachna was afraid because he was has a tremendous influence in his time. He didn't want the students to be overwhelmed by his personality, and therefore he said he didn't want to write anything down. So they shouldn't feel since he wrote it, then that settles the problem, and it's unchallengeable. I got it through my eun. You get it through your eun. That's all. Which entering, by the way, the Mashal says the same thing. So it's just interesting how they. Uh, approach this matter. But the bottom line is he didn't write anything. So if he didn't write anything, you've never heard of him. Most people haven't heard of him, except that they heard he's the father of the Ramah, or the Rebbe of this rabbi, or something like that. But it turns out in the end, he didn't do too much. When I say he didn't do too much, he wasn't, he either refrained from writing for the reason I just described, or perhaps he refrained from writing for another reason. This is my own personal opinion. I could be wrong. I've known a lot of Rebbe's Rashivas in my time. Not a million of them, but I've known plenty some of them are writers and some are not. You know, it seems to me, from what I can smell, Shalom Shachter was a guy who liked to sit and base manage hock and learning. You understand? There are certain types like that. And they like if you have a kasha and then they come back. They don't sit and go in the end of the day and write it out. They don't sit and write shalos and chubas all the time and, and, and write it out. I mean, he did his share, no question about it, because he answered a question from all over the world. But he didn't keep copies and, you know, prepare for publication and all the rest of it, because he's more interested in the idea. He gets more interest in the idea. So publication wasn't 
you know, in his blood, I guess. Uh, it's more like, you know, in the, uh, you know, Rabbi Rudin was like that. You know, there, there, there are people like that. They'd rather sit and uh, talk person to person in learning and, you know, battle it out that way than take the patience to how to construct it on paper and write and rewrite and all the rest of it. That's what I think. I could be wrong. That's what I think. So you have a very interesting person when it's all said and done. Plus, towards the end of his life, he got involved in this big uh, project uh, publishing the Shas. You know, in the 1500s was when they started uh, seriously publishing the Talmud in, in Italy. But eventually the Catholic Church burned it over there. And uh, even before that, you could tell it wasn't a great system. They wouldn't let, um, uh, what should I say, they wouldn't let Jews work on it a lot of times, like in Venice. So in Poland, uh, you know, there was a lot of money. So eventually, led by Shalom Shachna, they said, let's publish our own set of Vashas. And he himself uh, was Magia. You know, so he said, I'll be like the proofreader of the stuff that comes out, which led the Marshal, his opponent, to start screaming and say, I guess, Shalom Shachna's gears is in the world full of mistakes. Or let's put it this way, when he doesn't understand something, he just erases it, like in the like in the Chaim Podex, uh, what a book, whatever they call it. And uh, he made a whole tarama out of it. The original Chachma Shlomo, which is in the back of the Gemara, you know, uh, actually the new Gemara's, uh, no, I have the old set, you know, the new Gemara, I think they have the full business in the back of the Chachma Shlomo, don't they? And the Rashal in the back. You know, the old Gemara's didn't. What I mean to say is, when they published the Gemara Round 1 in Poland, so it had a lot of the Shalom Shachna stuff. Uh, but the Marshal claimed that it was full of errors and misreadings. And as a result, he went round two after Shalom Shachna died, the Marshal did. And he arranged for the reprinting of the Gemara with his, the Marshal's notes, which he said were a lot more uh, and, and, and uh, thoughtful and, and accurate. And by the way, that was true. Uh, historians have sided with the Marshal. Uh, but nevertheless, you see... Rishon Shachna taking, you know, uh, very responsibly the idea, um, the for one way or the other, the chief rabbi Polner or something like that. Therefore, we got to get the uh, the Gemaras off the road. We have to start publishing it. This is the beginning of the fact that in Eastern Europe is going to become the main place of Jewish publication, which makes sense. Uh, nowhere near what it should have been because they still left a lot in Pol- in Germany. But the reason I say it is, if you published elsewhere besides Poland, you're subject to heavy censorship on the part of the Catholic Church. That's why a lot of the Gemaras and Swarm from those years are very problematic for one reason or another because they're heavily censored by the Catholic Church. If you publish in Poland itself, even though it's a Catholic country, they held so little respect for the Jews that they say, we're not even going to bother to censor you, which is very good. <laughs> so they would have had a much easier time if they did all the publishing in places like Warsaw, or not Warsaw, but uh, uh, Lublin and uh, you know places like that. So it's just a very interesting period in uh, Jewish history. And um, after he passed away, he left a position to his son, but his son is not known. It's often the way it is. You know, he's a great father and not a great son. Uh, you know, fine guy and all that, but uh, n- n- not a great son. So what's the result? Um, you have Shalom Shachna as an unknown figure. Uh, because, like I say, uh, you know, the Ramah was his son-in-law for a short while, but that's all there is to it. He got into a big fight in his time, I'll just throw this in. Uh, as I said before, there's a lot of famous battles, halachic battles over certain issues or other. Shalom Shachna is famous for the fight about Sivlonus, which means if the boy gives the girl before uh, the wedding, uh, you know, presents, 
can you count it as a Kesa Kedushin? And it was a famous case, a big controversy, a rich family where such a thing happened. And, you know, the girl's family said that she was not married, and the boy's family said she was married. Obviously, they had bad feelings between each other. And Shalom Shachna said that um, he actually said something weird. He said, from the boy's perspective, he's not married, and he can marry somebody else, and he's not violating Cherem Rabbeinu Gershom. But from the girl's perspective, she is married, and she can't move on unless the boy gives her a get. That's the bottom line. All heck broke loose, and all over Europe, they're fighting with him, and they're fa- this is one of the big sets of Charleston Shubas of the 1500s. The Sephardim got in the act, the Atzimus Yosef, and a lot of famous uh, Sephardim postkim went against Shalom Shachna in, the, in Italy. The Maran Pado has a famous tube on this, and Bohemia... Uh, he didn't care. He said, I'm right, you're all wrong. And, you know, this is the way it is. If anybody messes, and he says, in Poland, I'm the boss. Anybody messes with me will be sorry. And I don't actually remember what the couple did, but I can almost guarantee you the girl's family arranged to get a get, because what do you need that junk for? You know what I mean? Like, what do you need, what do you need that trouble for? Uh, you know, that you're a mobster, according to Shalom Shachna. You know, you don't need that. So, uh, I remember, you know, you read the, you read the, uh, the things back and forth. It's one of the very few writings we have on halachic topics and you see he's a taka shepherd to keep him you know he said this is the way it is and this and this and i don't care what this region says and you know this is how you get it out of the gomorrah and uh see i he knew he had this teva which a lot of gadolim do which is you kind of disregard what the predecessor said and you call it like you see it straight from the from the bible you show me in such places but he must have also known that lozad derech in general because if you just overturn all the precedents that's like I have Keras. Anybody that knows anything about learning, on the one hand, and halacha, the other knows that a lot of times when you're involved in learning, you hear this far, let's see, you hear as far A and as far B. Just make, make this up. And to you, as far A makes a lot of sense, and as far B is really problematic. Yeah, it doesn't make sense because you have this problem and that problem. Let's say there's, it happens all the time. And then you start learning halacha. You get the Rambam, the Torah, the Shulchan Aruch, and such places. And to your surprise, you see, Svar B got taken, was the one that takes off. And they all rejected Svar A. And you say to yourself, that makes no sense. Svar A sounds so good, and Svar B is, is so problematic. But if you're going to be in the world of Allah, you're going to become the Rabbanus or something like that, get used to it, baby. This is how it goes. That this Svar is the one that got into the mainstream, and is repeated by the Shulchan Aruch, and by the Kalim and all the rest of it. And there you have it, you understand? In other words, your personal opinion doesn't matter anything. This is the way it goes. And you realize this is the way it was meant to be. You know, maybe it makes sense to you, maybe it doesn't make sense to you. This is the basic story I told you once, the very, very famous story from Chaim Brisk and Yitzhak Ochan Inspector. Chaim Brisk had some question, and he sent the child to Yitzhak Ochan Inspector, and believe me, Chaim Brisk also knew how to learn. And he writes to him, he said, I guess, just give me the psaac this way or that way. Don't give me your lumbus. Because if you give me the lumbus, I'll slug it up. You know, you're the posik, he said, you're the inspector. You're the one, you're the, the ishalacha, as they say. You know, you have the bar samchus in this door. So you're the posik, so I defer to you. Uh, happy to do so. If if you were talking about from the strictly logical, from the lumbershop perspective, I won't be able necessarily to agree with you. So just tell me what you think. That's a, I get the impression from what I read that that's how Shom Shachna was. You understand? He says, if you, you know, I call it the way I see it. And maybe the you know Rambam and the tour and people like that don't see it my way, but I gotta say it the way I see it. But I don't want to set, upset the whole apple cart, so I'm not going to write my own Shulchan Aruch. As you know, the, his student did write his own Shulchan Aruch, isn't that right? His student is Ramah. He did write his own Shulchan Aruch. 
So it's different personalities and different ways in handling. But this model of the multi-millionaire successful businessman slash chief rov in Poland slash hottest Rosh Hashiva, head of Lakewood, head of Panovich, is, I think, uh, probably a fairly unique combination. You don't usually see it among the Gedoli Yisrael. Anyway, I can't believe I got this uh, knocked off tonight, but that's great. Have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.